I'm going to call back to 1 Corinthians 5, which is the young man who's having a, a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Yeah. Right? So Paul in that book says, instead of confronting him, you're proud of how much grace you guys walk in? And Paul shakes his head and says, this is sin, and you should not be tolerating it. Kick him out. If he won't repent, kick him out. So that now we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and it's a call back to that situation. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, not to put it too severely, but the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And by the way, the only punishment that they gave was to disapprove. So Paul says the disapproval of the community is a powerful, powerful, powerful force and you've got to be very careful with it. And now that he has separated from this relationship, now that it's no longer going on, Paul's urging them to reaffirm your love for, for the young man. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in, in everything. Verse 10, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Verse 11, this is our verse. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So, so Paul's saying there was a scheme of Satan in tempting the young man into this illegal relationship. And there was, a, there was a, a satanic scheme even in what, what could happen emotionally in the young man when the church responded correctly. When the church responded correctly with disapproval, it's, it opens a door for the devil to twist it up and drive the young man completely away from the faith permanently. Even though God's intention in the church discipline is to drive him away from his sin, the evil one has a scheme. It's to drive him completely away from the church forever because the church carries Jesus. And Paul says, I want you to forgive the boy's sin so the devil don't win. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of the schemes. What schemes? Well, as a roaring lion, Satan's agenda is to lure us into darkness, to lure us into sin. What do all, what do all prowling lions look for? The weak, the sick, the young, the elderly. Because all of those categories can't keep up with the group. And if you can get them separated away from the group, then you got them. One wildebeest by itself is not near the threat. A bunch of wildebeest kicking at your head. Not a good day for a lion. One sick one, one weak one, one small one, one old one, easy takedown. Easy takedown. So as a roaring lion, Satan's agenda is to lure us into the darkness, into sin, to deceive us, and at opportune moments when we're vulnerable to attack us, to separate us from the faithful, to enslave us, because whoever sins is a slave to sin, says Jesus, and then after we're enslaved, to accuse and condemn us. So first he tempts, then if we take the bait, then he accuses and condemns. He shames us. He'll use our own conscience against us, right? He'll kick you when you're down. And the more we cooperate with these dark spiritual energies, the more we share in Satan's nature. We actually take on the image of the voice we follow. So the more we participate in these dark spiritual energies, the more we share Satan's nature. We share in his nature. He's resentful. He's proud. He's selfish. He's lonely and loveless. And ultimately, those who live under this, his kingdom, under his kingdom influence, will share his eternal lake of fire. All right, so that's, that's the roaring lion sort of agenda. God, our Father, has another agenda, very different agenda. It's to draw us into the love of Jesus. It's to place his righteousness on us so that we can dwell in his presence without blemish, without fault, with a clean conscience. His agenda is to bring his truth into the inmost place of our heart to set us free. His agenda is at those opportune moments of our weakness 
to bring comfort and encouragement and strength to us so that we persevere in the trial. His agenda is to connect us deeply to his faithful so that we have a support system and so that we have people to support. His agenda is to lavish grace and the power of the Holy Spirit on us in abundance. And the more we cooperate with the divine energies, the more we begin to share in God's own nature and image and likeness, his love, his joy, his humility, his mercy, his generosity. And instead of sharing in the devil's loneliness and independence, we end up sharing in God's togetherness and we will never be alone, ever. No, we'll be drawn into the eternal joy. Paul says it this way. The mortal being swallowed up by immortality. And then he says, God created us for this very purpose, that we would be swallowed up by life. That's his purpose. Swallowed up by life. Drawn into the eternal joy of the one who will wipe away every tear from every eye. And make all things new when his kingdom is consummated. And by the way, it's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. So two demonic goals. Just based on that one story and and my short description. If I could, you know, there's a difference between goals and strategies, right? The goal is where you're trying to get. The strategy is how you're trying to get there. So if if I I see two demonic goals... Ultimately, Satan's goal is to cut you and I off from Christ eternally. Would you agree with that? Does that? Is that the number one goal? Cut us off from Christ eternally. That's my theory about what the number one goal is, but if you've got a better one, I'll, I'll, I'll seed the ground. What if he can't do that? Does he have a secondary goal? So I have two goals here, two demonic goals against us. Either, either cut us off from Christ eternally, But if you can't do that, at least make us ineffective and unfruitful in our calling. Waste your life, even though you're in. If I can't cut them off from Jesus, I want them at least sidelined and ineffective and out of the game, out of the fight. Some people waste most of their life even after they're saved. That's painful to even say. We could take 30 years and and try to find inner healing before we get on with the work. That's another thing we can do. I I talked about that in my video last week. Because you know, I love inner healing, but not as an excuse not to get on with the work. It's like, come on, come on, man. It's safer to die doing Jesus' will than to be, you know? If he calls you to Mogadishu, that's the safest place for you, you know? So if, that, if that's the two demonic goals, what, what would be sort of the corollary, the divine, the big divine goals for your life? What's the positive side of that? United with Christ eternally. Stan, you, you were going to say it? Okay, then part, then part two would be it make us effective and fruitful in our kingdom calling. So that, that's, that's the goals. But those are not strategies. Those are just goals, right? Like if, if <laughs> I remember somebody was like, what's the, how do you play basketball? And the dude was like, you put this ball through that hoop right there. Oh, yeah. And you stop them from doing it over on the other end. Well, those are not the strategies. Those are the goals. Have you you heard us talk about this a lot in here? The word of God, the presence of God, and the people of God. The word of God, the presence of God, and the people of God are are just so so basic. They're so basic to how God forms Christ in people that I think it's important to note that if you set yourself to hear and do the word of God, to be filled with and follow the presence of God, and to be connected with and serve in the people of God, that each one of these will immediately provoke a demonic resistance. Okay? So this is why people find the Bible boring. You know? It's hard to get real in their prayer times, and church is just mm, so many issues and offenses around there. Because they're so powerful for promoting Jesus, those are attacked. If you set yourself to get the word of God, hearing and doing, the presence, soaking, being full of and and flowing with, and the people deeply connected with and serving alongside, you're going to find that attracts demonic resistance. Now, 
that should get us pumped. The more resistance, that means we're, we're actually setting off radars. There's alarms going off when you and I are, that resistance is what, that should bring encouragement. But it, some, so, many, so many times we assume the resistance means there's something wrong with me. No, there's something right with you and, and that's what the resistance is trying to squash, the thing that's right with you. But we get so self-pitying and, and self-analyzing. We're, oh, what's wrong with me? I find this boring. Of course you find this boring. It's the counter resistance to the health. It's like, it's a, it's a sign. You're on the right track. So the enemy's goal is right there. God's goal is right there. Every coach has a playbook. Let's say he goes to another team. Do you think he invents a whole new playbook or do you think he takes his, his standard playbook with him? He's going to take his standard... So do you think every new generation, the devil writes a new playbook? No. Why not? Because it works. <laughs> Doug and I were talking shop, and he goes, you're getting, you're, 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 you're calm down. You're, you're, you're coaching yourself to a, to a loss here. You're overcoaching. So what do you mean? He goes, if the play is working, keep running it. If you got a big bruiser of a boy and he's taken down the, the, the other team, let him be your blocker and let him run your, just run right behind him. Let him take everyone out and just he'll clear a path to the end zone. And I go, but won't he get tired? No, he won't get tired till he does. And when he does, then get, take him out of the game, give him a break. And then once he's ready to go back in, keep running the same old play. But they know we're going to run it, Doug. Who cares? They haven't figured out how to stop it, even though they know it's coming. Doug says, don't outcoach yourself and get fancy. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's four <laughs> demonic strategies against you and me that I don't care who you are, this is a temptation in your life. Now, you can tell me you have victory over it, and I'll believe you. But what you can't tell me is that it's not a strategy against you, even if you have victory over it. Pride. And included with pride is a critical spirit a judgmental attitude toward others. And you could even include in pride unbelief, but I'm going to put that as number four, spoiler alert. Because it is proud, it is pride to disagree with God. Wow, you disagree with God. You must really think you're smart. You know? But I would say, okay, number one is pride because with it is the number one thing the Bible says God resists. The number one thing you can do to attract yourself to the grace of God and therefore growth and help and mercy and answered prayers is humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. Shoom, God's on your team immediately. Now he's fighting for you. Proud, ooh, that's, that's, he's now against you. He's resisting you. Your prayers, your work, your efforts, uh, and your thinking that you're a great person. Pride blocks us from being able to even perceive our other faults, right? And the deeper pride goes, pride will, pride will help you get rid of lesser sins as long as it gets to be more rooted in, in you. So you can actually get rid of things like gluttony or even greed rooted in pride. You can become the most Bible-knowledgeable, correct, prayerful person in the world if the motive for doing it is so that you know that you are a good person and trusting in your goodness and feeling really self-content with the life you've constructed for yourself. You know, you'd be like a duck in the presence of God, but absolutely nothing's getting in. You throw that duck in the water, it's dry. By the way, not a teachable person. Defensive, unsubmissive, inflexible, not open to hearing any kind of feedback. Either tell me I'm amazing and the best thing ever, or you're the one with the problem and I'm out, I'm done. Pride won't submit to anyone. It won't listen. It won't hear. This is fatal, guys. This is beyond help. You can't help this. If this doesn't go, nothing goes right in the soul of this person. This is a strategy against you and me. It is why the church father said, uh, that's the real sin of Satan. They say he was a worship leader in heaven, but he wanted 
He thought his worship was so glorious that he started to think that, that we should probably be singing not just to the Lord, but maybe to him a little bit kind of a thing. You know, it's like, ah, you know, he must, he must be good looking and must be smart and must be very influential. If the, that's what I was about to say. If a third of heaven said, sounds right to me. A third. That's, that's crazy. You know, and, and I don't know how many of humanity is offended at God in the same way. Who does he think he is? I'm the one. I'm special. I'm smart. I'm good. I'm right. You know? But yeah, this, this makes for the... But here's the deal. It's not just God that resists the proud. You and I intuitively don't like the proud. We don't like it when we see it in ourselves, and we don't like it when we see it in others. We go, hmm, person thinks they're better than me. We're watching an interaction between other people, and you go, oh, my word. Gross. I'd rather sit next to the dude smelling like pee than that guy. That was a gross attitude. Ew, pride. Blech. But it's a little easier to see it in others, isn't it? <laughs> oh, boy. Second one I got. Unforgiveness. Listen, friends. Underneath just about every demon-possessed person somewhere is a heaping helping of bitterness. I never had an inner healing session that, didn't involve in, that did, not, did not involve extending forgiveness to somebody. Just saying. The devil's strategy. Let's see if I can get you sinned against in some way and then let you hold on to that or offended in some way and hold on to that. Unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, offense, holding on to hurts. This is a huge deal. I mean it. You talk to anyone who does deliverance ministry, unforgiveness is a stronghold. It's not the one. There's usually a series, a variety of things that, that work in tandem to get a whole mess of critters up in our lives. But you hold on to that. We hold on to that. Have you, have you ever noticed that the devil's incapable of forgiving? Love keeps no record of wrongs. The demonic kingdom is all about accusation and condemnation. It's, it's just like, it's the nature of that kingdom. And so that wants to be reproduced in us. Keep a record. Never forget. Be like an elephant. Be like a crow. You know crows are super, super geniuses? Crows will remember not just a kid through a rock at me. They will remember Jeff three years ago on a Thursday through a rock at me. He was over there. The students that worked with the crows in the experiments had to start wearing uh, disguises to get away from their retaliation because they were making their life horrible. My cousin's husband works in the wildlife thing in like Montana or something like that. And his boss had to take him off the job because he had messed up some, some, uh, some nests or something like that and they just des destroyed all of his stuff. They ripped his tent up, they followed him. They, not, not his buddies, not the other people on the crew, not their tents, his tent. They broke into his, his stuff and ruined his food. Like just, so, so much, the boss said, you're done. There's no point. These birds are just going to go after you relentlessly. Just go home. You know? okay. And that's like the devils. They don't, know how, they, don't, they don't forgive. They don't forget. And, there's, and, when, and when we're, that's a strategy against us. So that it can be 20 years ago this thing happened and I still don't like you because what you said. And that's not something to pass over. That's something to own and acknowledge. Let Jesus do the work. Because he'll point it out. Father, who do I need to forgive? He'll, he'll let me know, you know. And then the next thing you know, it's all I did that afternoon. It's fill my whiteboard with names. And my mind will be going, but they're a good dude. Doesn't matter if they're a good dude. You are harboring this against them because they hurt you because they didn't do what you felt they should, and it hurt you. Bitterness, offense, resentment, holding on to hurts. Uh, I remember I heard Rodney Hogue say this, and uh, he said, if somebody's coming to your church, and they were growing and excited, and then all of a sudden they come to you and they say, Pastor, we're just not getting fed anymore. He said, I've learned to say, have I offended you in some way? Yes, I have taken up offense at you. But what they end up saying is what they are experiencing, which is, 
these sermons just aren't as anointed anymore. Well, that's true on your end. They're not as anointed on your end because when you're offended, that's Nazareth. They took up offense at Jesus. He could do no mighty work there because they were offended at him. And unless you treat a prophet as a prophet, you don't receive a prophet's reward. Matthew 10, what is that, 10, 40, 41? But if you receive a prophet as a prophet, if you're able to receive him as he is and not trip over the humanness, now you get what he carries in the spirit. But if you trip over the humanness, you'll miss all the divine. Unforgiveness is a big deal. And, and I guarantee you, pride is a strategy against you and me. Unforgiveness is a strategy against you and me. Lust of the flesh and eyes. Now, when I put this word lusts on the board, immediately the first thing we're all going to think of is sexual sin. And that's true because that's involved in that. Lusts is the third word. But the scripture has so much more to say about the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes than just sexual sin. Lust of the flesh can be an inordinate need to be important. It can be an inordinate need to have more stuff that shows other people that I'm important and a success. It can be a need to be first. It can be a, it can be a need to be thanked or noticed. It's the lust of the flesh to have to need the pastor to call you on the phone to thank you for the huge offering you put in. By the way, I don't see who puts in what on purpose. I don't want to know. I don't want it to change how I treat people or think about people. I don't want the temptation of favoritism. So I just say, don't tell me. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I don't know. It's just like Paul when he says, uh, don't even ask if this food's been sacrificed to an idol. Don't ask. That way you don't have to even think about it. You're safe in Christ. But if you knew, then it might tempt you or the people who, who were in the room when you asked to suddenly be like, oh, now I can't eat it. The gospel will protect you, but you just don't even go there. Just close yourself off from even asking the question. Stay happily ignorant and in the freedom of the gospel. But anyway, lust of the flesh, gluttony, laziness, laziness. Yes, laziness, right? So I might be just as lazy as if I, as if I weighed 600 pounds, but you can't see it because of my metabolism. Maybe if I had someone else's metabolism, I'd be huge right now. But God sees right past all that to the issue. Maybe I consume so much media. Addictions fall under this. Addictions of all kinds fall under this. Gambling addictions we were just talking about, Abby and I, the other, she's, it was funny. Gambling addiction, food addiction, media consumption, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, porn addiction, all sorts of workaholism. These all fall under the lusts of the flesh. These are brilliant demonic strategies. They just work. They're very effective. Paul says, uh, every athlete goes into strict training to win the, the prize. And then he says, they do it to win an earthly prize, a temporary thing, a glory that's not that big a deal. It'll fade away. No one will remember 500 years from now that you won a prize. Who cares? Well, maybe they will, but it's very unlikely. But we go into strict training to win a prize that'll never fade away. And I love that verse because I don't know how many of us even think we have been enlisted in strict training. Strict training. Beat our body and make it our slave. Self-control. Why? So that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes don't have us in slavery to them. So that I can tell myself yes and obey and tell myself no and obey. Unbelief is my fourth. This is, this is right there, first right in the garden, right in the garden. Did God really say, he knows this, he's holding, you can't trust him, you got to be about it. Trust you, not him. And I said earlier, pride and unbelief are related because who in the heck do I think I am disagreeing with God, right? I must really think I'm smart to, to, to agree with me instead of him. That's, that's, that's wild. But here's, here's what else goes, goes into unbelief. Despair, self-pity, 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 poor me, poor me, woe is me. Guys, that's from hell. It's also sin. Self-pity is sin. But we don't treat it like sin. When our friend does it, we just put our arm on them and go there, there, and we should go, stop it. 
you need to stop that right now. The way you're talking and the way you're thinking is your main problem, not what's happening to you. What's happening to you is what's happening to every Christian in the whole world for all of human history. Stop it. Our ancestors were not carried to heaven on beds of ease and comfort, and neither will you be. Snap out of it. Your life's better than most. Now, by the way, I would not say that in an insensitive, unloving way, but there's probably a loving way to say that. It might take 40 minutes. Say it with different words, because not everyone's going to respond like me. I went and sat with Fred Antonelli, cried, this is what they did, this is what happened. And he didn't go, you poor baby. He said, what a baptism of pain you've just experienced. Welcome to ministry. It's like that for everyone. Nothing's wrong with you. Keep going. It's just like this. It's all good. Unbelief, self-pity, wallowing. The shield of faith is, is the opposite of this. And it, it extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one. Whereas unbelief leaves it down. And now it's just open season. Lie to me and I'll believe it because I ain't believing God. We think of unbelief as a personal sin, but it affects everyone around you. The Spartans charged their soldiers money if they lost their helmet or their sword or their spear. But it was a death sentence if you lost your shield because your shield was for the protection of the one on your right and on your left. You locked shields in formation and advanced. And if you don't have your shield, everyone around you is now going to be attacked. So we just think unbelief isn't hurting anybody but me. Actually, I don't even know if we notice it's a sin, to be honest with you. But it's definitely a demonic strategy. Don't believe what God said. Believe what you feel. Can I, can I define it like that? Don't believe what God says. Believe what you feel. Okay, any comments I should say there? Any comments as before we go on? Helmet, spear, sword. All of the offensive weapons were about individual. But their only defensive weapon, but, and by the way, they didn't have any defense behind them because they weren't running. <laughs> they never asked how many there were. They never, Spartans never ask how many of the enemy there are. All they ask is where are they? <laughs> I love those boys. Oh, and it helped me understand the, uh, the passages about women in the Bible, too, because a Spartan woman, once a year they had a festival where these extremely physically fit women would parade naked through the street, and it had nothing to do with sexual lust. It had to do with inspiring the women of Sparta for, for what, it's, what it can look like for you to take really good care of yourself so that you can bear as many warriors as possible. Because your, 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 your life consisted in the tribe, the group. So for the man, the greatest thing that could ever happen is you give your life for your people. And for a woman, the greatest thing that could ever happen is you die in childbirth for your people. So then I, I was like, oh my word, I've never understood that passage in the New Testament that says women will be saved through childbirth. I was like, what is that all about? Well, now I get it. Oh, it's a Greek thing. It's a Hellenistic thing. That's how they thought. That was like noble and like, that was, woman, that was a woman's warfare, kind of like, ah. And so like a, a Spartan mom would say to her son, uh, as she handed him his shield and he went off to war, either come back with this or on it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's hard to think about warfare stuff as a, as a um, Christian who believes in loving your enemies. But think of it like this. Every one of us has a, a hardcore battle to fight, an internal battle to fight. And, and if we're pacifists internally, we're going to suck at Christianity. <laughs> it's like, love the physical enemies, but don't love your spiritual enemies. You, you know, your unbelief, your sin, your greed, your avarice, your weakness, your cowardice, your despair. Those are your enemies. Kill them. Go to war. Make war on them. All right. Uh, any more comments before I move on? I had, I had pride, unforgiveness, lusts. Is that... Some of what you meant when you said that the Lord's calling you to take authority over stuff in your house. Our overseer, Mark, he says that you can't, you can't take over a house until you first bind the strong man. When he prays for us, he binds the strong man. There's a demonic a strategy against Gateway, and, and our overseer is daily resisting him in prayer on our behalf. And that, that's meaningful to me. And he says every husband in their household 
should be covering their, their, their wife and kids with that same spiritual protection. Or if you're the single mother of the house, you have that authority to cover your house. All right, humility, divine strategies. And I would say this, the divine strategies are more powerful than the demonic strategies. Humility is more powerful than pride. And the reason is, is this might draw demons to you and demons are more powerful than people, but humility will draw God to you and God, well, ain't nobody gonna arm wrestle God and win, you know? The finger of God casts out demons. It's just a, it's just a little flick, you know? Like when I flick a, a fly, you know? Humility. Humility in God's favor puts the devil on the run because it puts God's mighty hand to work. If God be for me, Romans 8, 31. Yeah, who can be? And the answer to that is nobody. Divine strategy is humility. What else is humility? Humility is teachable. It's not defensive. It's open to listening to, to other people's ideas. It doesn't, it doesn't instantly become retaliatory because it's not so up in pride that it needs to be coddled and told it's amazing. It doesn't need to be first. It doesn't need to be thanked. It doesn't need credit because it doesn't take credit because it sees clearly that it's, it's all gift anyway. It's all grace anyway. What do I have that I did not receive from the Lord? Nothing. Therefore, it's all gift. Humility is teachable. Humility is friendly. Humility is fun to be with. Humility is a good listener. And when humility talks, it don't sound the same as pride because it doesn't talk in order to prove that it is somebody. It talks to help somebody. Humility is attractive. Yep. And humility is not self-deprecating. It doesn't look down on itself. It doesn't think less of itself. It just thinks of itself less often. If you were humble, you wouldn't notice, in other words. It's not something you try to be. You can repent of pride, but I don't think you can try to be more humble. I think it's a byproduct of love. Love is humble. So as you grow in love, you'll grow in humility. But, it, but <laughs> if you were like keeping track, I was really humble today. I was probably more humble than anyone else in the room. Good for me. That's stupid, you know? <laughs> Back into pride again. So it's not something to just, you don't perform humility. But you can reject pride. You can say, I'm being all about me. I can, I'm, I'm gonna be love. Second one is forgiveness. This is huge spiritual warfare. Forgiving people is spiritual warfare. Letting go of the hurt, letting go of the resentment, handing him over to Jesus, letting God be God, turns him loose to fight these battles for us. It's huge spiritual warfare. It's amazing to me when you, say, when you say to God as you forgive, now that I've handed them over to you and I've handed you all this hurt, what do you want to give me? And just picture that now you've released the armies of heaven to fight on your behalf in a way that you fighting on your own behalf never could and never would. Instead of getting in his way, which is what unforgiveness does, I'm fighting, I'm getting in his way. Now I'm getting out of his way and now he's moving on my behalf. Oh. Forgiveness, oh my word. Plus, look at the anxiety and the hurt we carry with us as we just brood on what was done to us and stuff. And I'm not, even, I'm not even trying to be hard on us for how sometimes it's hard for us to forgive. Sometimes it's hard for me to forgive. And if I could just pull a switch and suddenly I would have let it all go, I would, I'll do that. Matthew 18, story of the unforgiving ser uh, servant. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I used to think that the story of the unforgiving servant where the guy... The king had a, the, forgave a huge debt. Then he went out and started strangling his buddy because he owed him 100 bucks or whatever. He was forgiven millions, but he wouldn't forgive his buddy for hundreds of bucks. He's strangling the dude and shaking him. Pay back to owe me. And then it says, the king in there says, um, hand him over to the, to the torturers until he's paid back everything he owes. And I used to think, oh, that's, that's about how it's going to be on judgment day. I no longer think that. Now I think that's what's happening in the spirit realm now when we don't forgive. That we're legally stepping out. We're legally stepping away from this shadow of the cross because if we're under this, we're in under, we're under grace. But if I won't forgive my brother, then I've stepped out from the shadow of the cross for them and me. And now I'm in a place where I'm no longer under the legal protection of the cross. And now demonic crap can come against, which is why I say when you deal with people who are heavily demonized, you almost always deal with unforgiveness issues. 
So when we walk in forgiveness, we put God as our warrior. And just we step into the place of grace. We step into the shadow of the cross. Talking with one of my friends, and I, this was an old thought for us, but it was a brand new thought for him. And it was fun for me to hear it from his brand new perspective. The cross that can make it like we've never sinned surely can also make it like we've never been sinned against. That's the glory of forgiveness. When we extend forgiveness, God begins to make it like we've never been sinned against. <sighs> Third one, holiness. So, lust of the flesh over here? No, holiness. Uh, is holiness a dirty word for us? Because I, I went to a, a Wesleyan school and we heard the word holiness so much that we started to go, I'm done hearing that word. And I think part of it had to do with the way they defined it. Holiness was what you do when you're not having fun. <laughs> Which is not true at all. It's not biblical at all. Um, holiness is a life as God intended. It is life by divine design. It shouldn't need to be said, but it is way more fun than sin. I used to say, we're not sure what holiness is, so we just replaced real holiness with a list of rules. But then we didn't know what that should look like either, so we decided that whatever the world's doing, we should just kind of not do that. So we're starting with the world instead of starting with Jesus. And then, well, they're doing that, so we'll do something kind of like that, but Christian version of it. So it, it, in real life, holiness ex looks exactly like Jesus. It, that's what it looks like. It looks like a human in right relationship with the Father who's the happiest person you ever met, who has more hope than anyone you ever met, who is deeper than anyone you ever met, and he's not trying to prove anything. He has not, really, honestly, he's not trying to achieve anything either. He just can't help but love people wherever he is. Colossians 2.23 then says, um, the harsh treatment of the body and the extreme discipline of the Pharisee, so to speak, is actually way less effective at creating holiness, whereas a surprising, relaxed relationship with Jesus and his love and his voice and his presence, which you didn't earn but you just get to enjoy every day, is incredibly powerful at destroying sin in your life. In other words, falling in love with Jesus is the source of holiness and really the essence of what holiness is. Holiness is loving Jesus and in that, learning to love others. That's what holiness is. It's not a big list of rules that you keep that tell you no. But that's what I grew up. The answer was no. Can we go to the theater? No. This is a generation before me. Can we play cards? No. Can I have a cigar with grandpa? No. You know? No. Can I listen to rock and roll? No. Can I even wear a tie? No. Can I wear a wedding band? No. I had somebody come to me and say, But can I have a mustache? No. <laughs> but I can have this part, but not this part? Oh, man. Holiness is loving Jesus. Lust of the flesh can be just 100% operating in the life of a Pharisee. The Pharisee looks at the disciple and says, he's breaking God's law. Look at him eating grain on the Sabbath. But the Pharisee despises the people Jesus loves. And the despising is coming from pride, and the pride is like the worst on the whole list. You know, Simon the Pharisee thinks he knows who the woman at Jesus' feet is, thinks he knows who Jesus is, and thinks he knows who he is, and he's wrong about all three. And actually, if he repented of his sin, he'd love Jesus even more than her, because he'd see that his spiritual pride is much more of a betrayal of Jesus than her carnality and sexual sin. I think, anyway. All right, next one. Faith. Ah, oh, this is the shield. Extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one. Faith is so awesome that all you have to do to be saved is trust Jesus. That's all you have to do. All they had to do in the beginning to be led astray is not trust God anymore. Boom. Because our hearts follow our faith. You don't believe Jesus if you don't follow Jesus because your heart shows me what you really believe. Your mouth can say, well, I believe Jesus. Your, James says your life's going to show what you really believe. I remember first time Brian Connolly came here. You remember what he said? 
He said he was up at four in the morning or five in the morning or some craziness, seeking God on a revelation of hell. He wanted to go to hell. That's what he wanted. He wanted, not, not physically, but he wanted to go there because he said, if hell's real and most people are going, I ought to be weeping as I walk down the street. He said, I say I believe in hell, but it's clear I don't because I don't care. I don't feel a thing. I walk right past people and I have the gospel all day long and I'm unbothered. So even though I have a doctrine of hell, I don't have a genuine faith in it because if I had a genuine faith in it, my life would reflect that genuine faith in it. If you genuinely believe Jesus, the work's pretty much already done because faith um, actualizes what it realizes. That's big smart person talk. You can't help but be consistent with your deepest beliefs. If you, if you 100% believe this building was on fire right now, you'd run out of here. You wouldn't have to say, well, I should line my faith up with my beliefs. It would automatically start to happen. Faith wards off the discouragement and the wallowing and the self-focused nature of unbelief. It automatically does that because faith is not in faith. When Jesus said your faith has saved you, he wasn't saying, put your faith in your faith. That's a weird circle. He was saying, your eyes are on me and you trust me. And that's why this is happening. You trust me. When he says your faith has saved you, he's saying you are actually looking at me. You're connected to the right thing. And that's why this is happening. Faith is a mind that thinks like God and a heart that feels as though God were the main factor in every equation. Faith is a mind that thinks like God and a heart that feels like God is the main factor in every equation. That's why it's a shield. If that's true, I can sleep tonight. I remember the time when I was in here praying. I was in here praying for a move of God. And all of a sudden, faith hit me that it would happen. It was interesting. It shielded me. I became sort of bulletproof on that stuff for a while. Wouldn't it be nice if I stayed there? Okay. 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now I'm going to give you extra ones, because these are four here, right? But I gave like eight here. So here's my extra ones. Divine strategy. Don't just run away from sin. Run after Jesus with godly people. It's 2 Timothy 2.22, and I quote it all the time. It's the 2.2.2.2. So it says, flee the evil desires of youth and chase after righteousness, love, and, and hope. Righteousness, love, and something along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That verse has so much in it. So it doesn't just say run from temptation, but do. Run away from temptation. People are trying to fight temptation way too hard. Don't, don't fight it. Flee it. Get the heck out of there. Are you crazy? Get out of there. Don't play with it. Run away. And you go, but I can't. It's my job and I have to work around it. Okay. Well, then you seek God and it says, it says that no temptation has seized you except which is common to all people. And God is faithful. He won't, be, he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure, but he will provide an escape hatch for you, a way out. Those are scriptures. But don't just run from sin. And this is what I'm bothered by in these, in these support groups we get into where it's focused on, did you sin this week? That's not running after Jesus. That's just... There's strategies that, that root us in a sin identity. So like if you're posting on Facebook, it's day 206 of my sobriety. I'm concerned about you because it's still the sun that your life is orbiting around. First, your life was orbiting around doing it. Now your life's orbiting around not doing it, but it's still the center. You're still your identity. Now you're lawing yourself. So that means you're, you're externally restraining your behavior while constantly thinking about it and fixating on it. How long can that last? Not too long, I think. You're just a dry drunk at that point. It scares me. How about we run after Jesus? How about we fall in love with Jesus? Because falling in love with Jesus, Colossians 2.23, we just saw, produces genuine freedom and power and transformation and holiness and love because a greater love always presses out a lesser love. It's just how the heart works. But that's number eight, actually, falling in love with Jesus. Number six, here's a divine strategy. It's called the priesthood of believers. And here's what I mean. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Why? All I need to do is confess my sins to God. Well, that's true to be forgiven by God, but that's not the same as your soul being free. The devils can still eat your lunch and fill you with shame and condemnation even though God's forgiven you, but having some brothers look you in the face and say, that sin's under the blood. This is the evil one. 
and help cover you with the blood. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We become priests for each other to apply the blood. And that's a huge spiritual warfare thing. This is the antidote, I think, to the condemnation and the shame. Number seven, and this is my final one, prayer and fasting. And I, I would underline this word, fasting. Do you remember Matthew 17, 21, where Jesus' disciples cannot get this kid free of this devil? Do you remember this story? He's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember this? They're on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus, his clothes shine really bright. John and Peter and James are there, and they have this encounter. It's just amazing. And then as soon as they're coming down the mountain, they're met with the rest of the disciples who've been still doing ministry without Jesus, right? So on Jesus' behalf, they've been continuing the work. And he comes down the mountain, and you always hope as a leader that when you go away, things were handled in your absence really well. And if they're not, it can be frustrating. They say, how come we couldn't cast it out? Because the dad says, I brought my boy to your disciples, and they couldn't get the demon out. And it often tries to throw him into the fire to burn him, or it often tries to throw him into the water to drown him. So I brought him here in desperate times, and they couldn't get it out. And then Jesus says, bring him here, cast it out, and they go, why couldn't we do it? And that's his response. This kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. Now, that's intriguing. When I was talking with Glenn on the way to the, air, the airport, he said, almost everyone I know who has a deliverance ministry spends a lot of time fasting. Does that smell true? It smells very true, doesn't it? Because I mentioned David Hogan in Mexico. They have a lot of witch doctor stuff and syncretism and animism in the hill tribes that he, that he tries to reach. So there's people putting curses on him and his people all the time. So they're dealing with an intense, on-purpose, knowingly demonized people, intentionally demonized people. And they fast every other day. They eat half the time. It sounds extreme to us, right? To them, that sounds like winning. That sounds like power. Here's James chapter 4. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what's the strategy? Do you fight, do you fight the devil directly? No, you submit yourself to God. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. That means quit it. Get out of it. What you know you're doing wrong, stop it. If you know there is sin in your life, cut it out. And I'm not talking about the ones you're trying to cut out and struggling to cut out. I'm talking about the ones you can cut out and you just aren't. If you're knowingly sinning, wash your hands. Get it off. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop moving in two directions. I was talking with Glenn about, he said this friend said, pray for me for healing. But before you do, I want you to know that sometimes it's not God's will to heal me because God wants to do this, that, and the other and make me holy through sickness. And sometimes it's his will for me to be sick. And sometimes it's will for him to take us home to heaven with sickness. And Glenn said, you're triple-minded. You ain't even double-minded. You're triple-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? It means get deadly serious about this. Stop making it okay for your life to suffer and, and, and just be limited and trapped. You know, it's like, you're okay with this and you can't be okay with this and expect it to change. Like, like um, there's this beautiful story in the Old Testament where Elisha's on his deathbed. He's an old man. And this guy comes, this king comes to him and says, I want you to pray for me and bless me. I got these enemies coming against me. So he prays, you know, God's victory over them. He says, get a bow and arrow. He gets a bow and arrow. He says, shoot it out the window. He shoots the thing out the window. And he says, now, great. That's how it's going to be. The arrows of the Lord are going to go against the enemy. And then he says, now, take these arrows. Okay, now strike the ground with them. He strikes the ground three times. And then Elisha goes, what have you done? And the guy says, what do you mean? And he goes, if you had struck the ground like five or six times, we would have had victory over the Arameans. But as it is, we're only going to have like three months of victory over them, and then they're going to come back. Now, here's the point. Passion matters. Passion matters. And, and James says the same thing. Get real. Do you really want free? You have to mean it. 
Grieve, mourn, and wail. Humble yourself. Get serious. Be full-hearted. Be sincere. Casual prayers get casual answers. The hungry always get fed. I will not let you go till you bless me gets blessed. Not letting the angel of the Lord go. Praying all night. Taking God at his word, but wrestling him. He, he, God loves that. He loves your passion. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Peter says the same thing. God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the entire world is undergoing the exact same kinds of sufferings. And after a little while, the God of all grace, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. Oh, I'm just gonna throw this random verse out there. Married families, married couples, look at this. It says, Paul says, don't refuse sex for each other. Husband, your body belongs to your wife. Wife, your, your, your body belongs to your husband. And the only reason for married couples to not have sex constantly, it says, is because you've agreed to not so that you can spend more time in prayer. And then it says this, then Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Tempt you to what? Lust, away from the spouse. Paul takes it so seriously that the devil has an opportunity because of the weakness of the flesh. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The weakness of the flesh opens us up to the world and the devil. And so Paul goes, most of you can't handle singleness like I can. You should get married and have sex constantly. When I say that in church, the men are always like, yay, and the women are like, oh, I have a headache. So I'm just joking, by the way. It's a joke. It's a joke. People used to get married at 17 years old and start having babies like crazy, just cranking them out. And now it's like, we're 44 and we're finally having a baby. And I'm like, so during your sexual peak, you were just like open for demonic temptation for like most of your life. That's a bad idea, guys. As a roaring lion, Satan's agenda is to lure us into the darkness, into sin, to deceive us, and at opportune moments when we're vulnerable, to attack and separate us from the faithful, to enslave us, and then after that, to accuse and condemn us. And the more that we cooperate with his dark spiritual energies, the more we share his nature, his resentment, his pride, his selfishness, and his loveless loneliness. And ultimately, those who live under his kingdom influence will share in the eternal lake of fire with him. But God, our Father, also has an agenda to draw us into the love of Jesus, to place his righteous robe on us, which we didn't earn, so that we can dwell in his presence without blemish or fault and to bring his truth into our innermost being and set us free. And at opportune moments when we're at our most weak and vulnerable, he strengthens, comforts, and encourages us so that we persevere. He connects us to his faithful body. He lavishes grace and the power of the Holy Spirit on us in abundance. And the more we cooperate with his divine energies, the more we share in his nature, in his image, in his likeness, in his love, joy, humility, generosity. And we will never be alone. Instead, we will be swallowed up by life, drawn into the eternal joy of the one who will one day wipe every tear from every eye and make all things new at the consummation of his kingdom. Amen.